Hello, everyone, and welcome to Motos and Friends, a podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling Magazine. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the Yamaha YZF-R7, the amazing supersport machine that is comfortable too. Check it out at your local Yamaha dealer or, of course, at yamahamotorsports.com. In this week's first segment, senior editor Nick DeSena rides the gorgeous new MV Agusta F3RR on the track and in the canyons. The MV Agusta is an exotic machine with a rarefied price tag. Is it art or does it actually deliver the goods? Hmm, I guess we'll find out when Nick gives us his thoughts. The second part of this podcast is brought to you by editor-at-large Neil Bailey, who is currently reporting from the Ukraine war zone. In this segment, Neil introduces us to world motorcycle traveller Anna Greshishkina. Anna is herself Ukrainian and, somewhat naturally, felt the need to curtail her travels and head back to her homeland and into the war zone to help with the horrendous humanitarian crisis that is developing there. Please follow Anna on her social media, either Anna Greshishkina on Facebook or at Anna Greshishkina on Instagram. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Uh, the 2022 MV Agusta F3RR. Very nice. I rode one of those at Mizano a few years ago. The legendary YouTube clip is still on our channel, I believe. <laughs> is that the gravel trap one? <laughs> no, no, that was the KTM Super Duke. <laughs> Although it has to be said, I have seen more than one gravel trap in my time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you said legendary i thought that's what you're referencing i was like oh. no i'm just saying that every single video i've ever made has been legendary ah <laughs> i wish <laughs> all right my okay, mistake. Sorry. sorry i digress anyway go ahead yeah so this is the updated version of what you wrote in Mizano a number of years ago and the f3 platform um it dropped its numerical portion of the name so it's no longer the f3800 because there's no 675 anymore um that bike can't uh pass the mustard with euro 5 and so updating it just wasn't uh in the cards apparently and it's relegated the f3 platform to the 800s only so that includes the f3 rosso which is essentially the base model and then we have the upspec F3RR, which comes with a handful of goodies, 
um, on top of the optionally installed racing kit that you can uh, put onto your bike, which has a, an, another handful of goodies and performance add-ons as well. And we'll get into all that in just a minute here. The, the engine, of course, is the, is the same across the frame, three-cylinder, you know, triple. Yeah, so it is the, the same uh, 798cc triple-cylinder engine. And, you know, MV has used this power plant in a variety of motorcycles. So it was used in all of the uh, Brutale 800s. And they really defined um, the power plant in each of its, its different iterations and applications by giving it slightly different, um, you know, horsepower values, tuning them a little differently. So the F3, because it's a fully fared sport bike, it has the most, we'll say, lively or potent variation of this engine. You know, looking at things by the numbers, makes 147 horsepower at 13,000 RPM. So it's really high revving motor and 65 foot pounds of torque at, you know, 10,100 RPM. And the thing that probably translates regardless of uh, whether it, we're talking Brutale, you know, the naked sport bike or the fully fared super sport like the F3 and the uh, F3RR here, you know, it's a very high revving motor that spins up incredibly fast when you want it to. And also just has that, that sort of triple cylinder smoothness that, that really is quite unique to the inline triple cylinder configuration. You know, what I really enjoy about this power plant is that it seems to be, at least by, by my estimation, probably the most potent triple cylinder on the market right now. When you compare it to stuff like the MT-09, uh, XSR 900 or uh, Tracer 9 GT. Those are all good motors and they're outright, but MV's triple is probably the most aggressive of the bunch and its horsepower numbers and, and torque numbers reflect that. It makes, on paper at least, the most performance measured at the crank when we talk about middleweight triple cylinder engines. You know, they, they released this engine a number of years ago, um, dates back all the way to 2013 really, so it's it's been out there for a while and it's kind of ahead of the game as well. You know, it, it's, it came out with stuff like titanium valves, uh, a counter rotating crankshaft. Um, titanium valves are just pricey. Uh, they're lightweight. They help the engine spin up much more aggressively. Hence why this thing is, is, uh, as I described before, it's very, very apt to get on the gas and get off the line. And then the, Counter-rotating crankshaft is something that we really haven't seen come to market unless you're talking about modern Ducatis. Uh, they're really the only other brands that has instituted a counter-rotating crankshaft into their engines. And that was more of a pretty recent addition. And counter-rotating crankshafts do um, quite a bit. Uh, they really help negate gyroscopic forces of the crank and improves agility of the motorcycle just allows the bike to turn a little bit easier. And uh, it also improves uh, wheelie control characteristics where it really helps the front end kind of uh, get pushed down essentially when you're hard on the gas. So around town and things like that, it's not applicable, but when you're riding aggressively, that's when it becomes a factor. So in a lot of ways, you know, MV, they sort of take this sort of, upper mantle uh, area 
in the, the larger motorcycle market. And this engine has always well, offered a lot of, of very chic tech, we'll say. And um, yeah, it's always been up there. And then for the 2022 update, it's gotten a whole lot of different um, updates and they're all really geared at efficiency. So now it is things like centered valve guides, DLC coated valve tappets, low friction bearings all throughout the engine. Um, and that just allows the engine to spin up more freely. Again, we're aimed at efficiency here. It also has a new exhaust, high pressure fuel injectors, and a twin flow radiator. Again, trying to achieve greater efficiency. And that all those changes were done to um, satisfy Euro 5 emissions. So it didn't leave any horsepower on the table, didn't lose any horsepower, met Euro 5 demands, and actually became a little bit smoother, a little bit more refined, and retained all of those aggressive characteristics that really make this engine what it is. It's uh, kind of interesting. I remember talking to uh, Brian Gillen, who is the chief engineer at MV Agusta, and he said that when MV were entering Moto2, you know, a couple of years ago, and he was talking about the Triumph uh, 765 motor that, of course, is the spec motor in Moto2. And he said it was sort of odd for us to have to um, allow for less horsepower than our own motor puts out. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of clarify on the, the Triumph versus MV and, you know, uh, Yamaha MT, these are all different displacements too. the Yamaha 765. The, or sorry, the Triumph is 765, the Yamaha is uh, 889, pretty sure it's 889, or maybe 890, one of the two. And then we have the 798. So we have the 765 and 800 and almost the 900. They all feel quite different. Uh, they, they all have that triple cylinder smoothness that I hit on before, but they all deliver their power in quite different ways. The Triumph is extremely gentlemanly. You know, it's incredibly inviting. The Yamaha is just a very well-rounded engine. I think a lot of people could use that for a lot of different applications. And, you know, to its credit, it's used in three different bikes, you know, two naked sport bikes and then one sport touring bike. So, you know, it gets a lot of love there. And then MV's engine, definitely the most aggressive of the bunch, quite apt in fitting in this super sport uh, slot and application. But again, they use that triple triple cylinder engine in a handful of different bikes as well. If I'm not mistaken, it is in the Brutale and it is also in the Turismo Veloce. Correct. The other thing that uh, is quite interesting, since you're bringing up the Turismo Veloce, several of these MVs nowadays are coming with the Recluse Clutch, which is a sort of uh, automatic clutch, if you want to put it that way. No, no, it doesn't. Not even as an option? No, no, it, it, it has a conventional conventional clutch. Part of the updates and recent updates to the, the F3 platform is that it gained uh, modern electronics. You know, in, in this generation, it's running the latest uh, MV Agusta quick shifting system as well. So when we talk about the gearbox specifically, the only change they did um, for 2022 is give it a reinforced clutch basket, which according to the literature says that it improves engagement. We'll have to take them at face value on that. For me, clutch engagement was, you know, totally sporty as you like, very positive shifting uh, throughout. And the quick shifter is well sorted in pretty much every way. If you're riding at low RPM or at the racetrack and really, you know, giving it the beans, 
it's uh it works it works quite well the only sort of nitpick i have about the the clutch is that still using a cable clutch and that you know in and of itself isn't a negative observation it just feels like a, a quite heavy heavy clutch pull in many respects when you compare that to its direct competitors which would be you know the ducati Panigale v2 which uses a hydraulic clutch and uh the triumph daytona 765 limited edition um you know that is or sorry triumph daytona moto 2 765 limited edition the official name <laughs> okay and it's a limited edition if you were to even find one at this point and buy one good luck um realistically triumph's competitor would be the street triple 765 rs but still you know very light clutch poles on either either of those motorcycles in that regard it does feel a little bit of its of its age you know because we have to remember that the bones of this bike are 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 a bit bit older they date back quite a ways the the interesting thing is that when mv put this bike out it was sort of headed game in a lot of ways they got a lot of things right sort of right out of the gate yeah they really did um of course the yamahas have super easy clutches as well so so yeah i mean these modern manufacturers of of uh have got these these nice clutch pulls on them and so i think we're getting a bit spoiled by that so it does stand out a little bit when a clutch is a little bit of a harder pull but oh yeah but uh, with a quick shifter essentially you use the clutch to move off and then you don't use it again until you stop yeah yeah so uh, not that big of a deal anyway you were talking about earlier about um there were some performance enhancements that's part of the racing kit now it's a little we got to do some clarification and it's, it's in our story as well for reference in other markets the racing kit is advertised as an optional accessory you know you go out you go buy the bike you buy the racing kit you install it now according to mp agusta north american reps and how the bike is being delivered for your we'll say luxury $26,998, which is the MSRP of this motorcycle. The racing kit is included, um, which in my mind is uh, quite nice at, it, at, its, at its lofty MSRP. Um, so it can be optionally installed. Now, if you're spending that kind of money and you're buying this bike, chances are you want that racing kit on there immediately. And there's really no downside to installing it and as far as aesthetic changes that come along with the package you get cnc machined foldable levers um they have mv agusa branding on them as well that's just kind of a, a nice little little touch you have a keyless racing style fuel cap i actually prefer those um like on my personal race bike I, that's what i use it's just easier and then you also get a fiberglass pillion seat cover and that just completes the sporty look of the RR. I think that's 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 something that just kind of should be there from the beginning anyway. Now, the, the part that actually matters here, above all those other little bits that sort of appeal to the senses, is the titanium Akrapovich exhaust that has a dedicated ECU map. Now, it's still street legal, but it saves 17.6 pounds over the iconic triple stacked slash cut pipes that MV has employed for many years. Now, another benefit is that you boost the horsepower from 147 to 155 and peak torque remains unchanged. So to sort of wrap that all up in a bow, 
you gain a few horsepower and you save 17.6 pounds, which is quite a bit on any motorcycle, especially in the super sport category. They changed from SC Project, which came on TJ's Brutale, uh, to Akropovich. And her SC Project came with its own specific SC um, ECU. And boy, it adds, it certainly adds horsepower. It takes away weight. It is also one of the most beautiful exhaust pipes you can ever see uh, with all that titanium welding. But be that as it may, it is also heinously loud. I mean, insanely loud. But I guess we'll forgive it that because it sounds so cool. <laughs> anyway, so it's interesting that they've gone to a Kropovich from SC Project. So how about the uh, the gearbox and the rest of the transmission? I know it was a little bit glitchy. The one I rode in Mizano, the F3, definitely had a little bit of trouble at peak revs changing from third into fourth gear. And but this was you know several years ago, so I'm sure they've they've uh, addressed that a long time ago. Yeah, I mean we we touched on the gearbox a little bit before, but. No, we, I didn't experience any issues on the street or the racetrack. The only thing that I, I, had, I had mentioned earlier is just a slightly heavier clutch pull in comparison to other, other motorcycles on the market today. But no, uh, gearbox is totally sorted in that regard. And with the quick shifter, you can just bang up and down as you please. And, you know, it's all good. On the suspension front, internal settings are new, but it is the same uh, Marzocchi and Saks hardware that we've seen on the F3s for quite a long time. The sort of criticism I would have here is that we're not having any golden Gildan Olins or semi-active suspension or even a steering damper, which at this price point, I would really like to see on this motorcycle. The, the sort of undercut to that criticism is that the Marzocchi and Saks suspension works quite well in a lot of different uh, arenas. You know, on the street, it's, it's damped aggressively enough and it's firm enough to where it's not an incredibly harsh ride. Damping wise, you know, it works incredibly, incredibly well. There's good support at each end. Spring rates aren't overly, overly aggressive. And uh, I think they've, they've really kind of found a, a Goldie, Goldilocks setting uh, with what they've done in, in terms of their overall setup. You know, again, it is fully adjustable. So you can go ahead and dial things in as you please. But overall, I think they've found a, a, a happy, happy medium. For the money though, I would like something that's a little bit more up spec, but that's sort of a, you know, a, a I guess a, a Starbucks bragging rights sort of criticism more than anything. Sure. Um, so MSRP of the 2022 MV Augusta F3RR is a, very respectable $26,998. So it's up there. Yeah, 27 grand for a, an 800. Yeah. But, uh, but of course, it, you, you get the MV Augusta build quality, the, the looks, the design. Yeah. And there's, there's more to that number that we'll get into in, in a second. And we really do have to remember that, you know, the super sport category is, if we're just being harsh and dead honest here, it's looking like it's on the way out um, in terms of the traditional 600 Supersport category. While we still get almost all of them sans the R6 because Yamaha pulled that from its uh, traditional street lineup and made it a race-only offering, in other markets, 600 uh, Supersports have gone the way of the Dodo. 
uh, in major markets as well. So those bikes couldn't uh, meet standard emissions uh, updates and, and bringing those up to snuff would just take way too much money. So certain manufacturers have just come out of or stepped out of the game in, in many major markets. Um, and that leaves the larger displacement motorcycles um, like the MV Agusta, uh, like the Ducati, like the Triumph that we mentioned before. And that really speaks to what FIM and Dorna is doing with, uh, you know, the next generation world supersport category, where allowing larger displacement motorcycles into the class, essentially to get bikes on the grid. And, uh, you know, the MV is, is a candidate in, in that class as well. It still has the sort of iconic uh, steel trellis MV Agusta frame. They did make one change to it, which on paper doesn't sound like a lot, but it does uh, ring out quite a bit of performance, in my opinion. And the chassis is sort of the, the important part of the MV Agusta in my mind. This is why you buy the bike. You know, I, I have a feeling a lot of MV Agusta owners may be buying the motorcycle because of its looks and you know, the fact that it's dripping in carbon fiber and this and that, but the chassis is absolutely incredible. And that does go back to the suspension in a lot of ways, even though I want shiny golden gilded parts, but um, the chassis has one change in the sense that the support brackets on either side are a bit stiffer. That's just to improve uh, uh, chassis rigidity, essentially around the swing arm area. But the sort of crucial thing about the F3RR and ostensibly the F3 Rosso as well, is just how it steers. It feels so lightweight, it's nimble, and the amount of me mechanical grip that this thing generates is just truly impressive. So when you're getting on the brakes and tipping in, you have just the utmost confidence in the front end. And likewise, when you're accelerating, the way the rear end just hooks up and just launches you off the apex, and how stable and composed it is when you're accelerating is incredibly impressive. And I would credit the counter-rotating crankshaft. There also is another factor going on that's specific to the RR, wherein the, the rear wheel is 7% lighter than the previous iteration. So you're losing a lot of unsprung mass and inertia. Probably just you know helps out its uh, handling characteristics in that regard. It sounds awesome. I have to say, my wife's Brutale handles spectacularly well. So this is going to probably take that to even another level, I would think. Yeah, and you also have to factor in the more aggressive riding position and things like that. Sure. Um, what's, the, what's the fueling like on it? Is this a relatively easy-to-ride bike, or is this something that, that requires some real finesse to get, to get something out of it? Yeah, so when we talk about fueling, there are a handful of maps, and um, MV Agusta has, has done a, quite a good job over the years of improving those characteristics. If you think about early MV Agustas with ride-by-wire throttles, they could be a little bit unrefined. This is nothing of the sort. Um, they've done a great job with all the modes across the board. So you have race, sport, and rain. Then you also have a, a user programmed custom mode that really allows you to dive into just about every parameter of the of the engine characteristics and uh, kind of mapping in general. That opens up things like throttle sensitivity, engine braking, engine response, which changes the the aggressiveness of the motor. We'll say also you have max torque settings, rev limiter aggressiveness, and uh, you can 
adjust quick shifter uh, settings as well. And that's in the custom mode. But going back to the standard presets, race, sport, and rain, you know, I loved race so much that I pretty much stuck with that on the track and on the street, which is really rare because race modes tend to be incredibly aggressive. But MV Agusta has done a really good job with making the throttle smooth and tractable throughout. Sure. It, it's a sporty motor, you know, through and through. What helps the engine, you know, remain tractable and rideable is the fact that it has good fueling and the race mode is quite good. Yeah, I, they've done a really good job with the fueling here. And since we're on the subject of, uh, you know, throttle modes that is related to the, the greater electronics, um, you know, we have a an updated 5.5 inch full color uh, dash. So that's something that's, that's quite nice. It does bring it up to snuff with the rest of the motorcycles in this class realistically. You also get cruise control, which is a very cool feature on any super sport and launch control. It's one of the features that are rarely used, but um, at any rate, going into the, the greater electronics package, MV Agusta has a tapped fellow Italian manufacturer, Enovia, to develop its new six axis IMU for a total of eight traction control settings. And they've done a good job of you know, going down the ladder. Obviously eight is the most aggressive. That's basically what you'd want to be using if you're on the racetrack in the rain. Um, when I was at the racetrack with a set of stickier uh, Pirelli Supercorsa SC3 tires, I found level two to kind of be the sweet spot. I would bounce around between level two and three. Um, that just allowed me to get the just a great, aggressive, clean drive without electronics stepping in. And if I did get a little too loose coming out of, uh, you know, certain sections, then I had some, uh, some, some buffer to, to help me out. So on the TC front, they've done a really good job with their latest iteration of traction control. The other thing to notice here, though, is um, it's, it's kind of a curious oddity about MV Agusta. Uh, there's no TC light on this fancy new dash. So... I happen to use TC lights a lot when we're testing motorcycles, just to give me a reference point as to when and how TC is activating. Sometimes TC is activating and you may not feel it at all because the traction control system is calibrated so well. In this sense, you know, I really had to focus in as to what I was getting from the throttle. Um, so, you know, the thing to sort of take away here is that even when it does take a big bite out of the power, it does so in a very subtle way. So it's not like old school TC systems or even previous iterations of TC systems that were on MVs where it could be quite intrusive. Um, in this case, it just sort of reels back the power. It's almost as if you go, okay, I want 80% power to this corner and the bike just goes, you know what? We're gonna keep it at about 60, bud. Okay. And just sort of holds it there. Um, <laughs> okay. That also takes us into the cornering ABS. Again, that's all updated for this year. You have two modes, uh, standard, you have sport and race. Interestingly, the sport mode, even though that's the quote unquote reserved setting, more than capable of hustling around at the racetrack. If you lift the rear end too high, um, say you're braking super hard and you know hit a bump and start lifting it, or you're just trail braking super deep, you will feel the ABS um, kind of pulse in the lever but it's not really a detriment in my opinion. So okay. I, I ran that 
kind of most of the day. I tested out the race mode just because, and uh, that disables ABS in the rear and gives you a lot more leeway. So didn't even trigger ABS except uh, one time when I was kind of panic breaking. You think, oh, I'm going to be last of the late breakers and pick this guy off. And then you're like, oh, that guy was breaking a lot better than I thought he would. So <laughs> yeah, I had one of those. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't endanger the MV Gusta in case anyone from MV North America is listening, but uh, <laughs> it was, was a fun and exciting time. Now the race racing kit ECU also unlocks another ABS capability, which is ABS mode zero. When you put it in ABS mode zero, you the warning saying that the IMU is disabled. Now, a lot of manufacturers Euro 5 standards because you can't completely disable Euro or ABS according to Euro 5 law. It, manufacturers have gotten around that by creating a mode that disables the IMU, allowing you to trail break at much, much higher lean angles without intervention. Um, and that's essentially what we got here. And then, of course, the last thing with the electronics is the wheelie control. It's either on or off. But again, going back to sort of the tractability of the engine, um, with wheelie control activated, it just nurses like a really modest little front wheel hover. And for my money, I kept it on at the racetrack. I mean, it, it didn't hinder me in any way. And, and, you know, I just felt like I could focus a little bit more. There was a couple sections at Button Willow where when you're at really high RPM coming out of a corner, you can instigate a wheelie by hitting a couple of pumps. And that just let you sort of loft the front end and just keep it wide open throttle and not have to care about dragging the rear brake or anything. Nice. But even when I disabled wheelie control, it just, I mean, I don't want to say it's negligible because it's not, it's definitely there, but the engine is controllable enough to where, yeah, just a dab rear brake and just maybe cracking the throttle off a hair. And that's enough to, to, you know, step in, um, it's not like riding a 1000 where turning off wheelie control can be a uh, exciting experience. We'll say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, good stuff. The other thing is that Envy Augusta are kind of legendary for their various finishes and, and, and fit. What are the color options on the F3? Um, there are a couple different color options for the RR, you know, since you brought up fit, that does bring us into the aero package. And that's, it's kind of the big visual thing that we're seeing uh, for 2022 with the RR specifically. It has a MotoGP inspired aero package that, wow. interestingly enough, generates 17.6 pounds of downforce at 149 miles per hour. <laughs> so yeah. it's not exactly something you're going to be using on the street every day. <laughs> um, but just looking at it, it looks awesome. You have these carbon fiber body paneling on the side. That's all carbon fiber. There's a carbon fiber Moto 2 style wraparound uh, fender. And it also has these, these cool little um, winglets. Or... Well, it, it has these, these little air, air ducts to cool the brakes, which is a, an awesome little feature. It, it really does look like a Moto 2 style uh, fender for the front wheel. And then there's also a couple little other uh, carbon fiber bits like the nose shroud just below the headlight area. Um, so this thing is, you know, quite, uh, you know, flexing its carbon fiber Italian chrome to people in the know. 
<laughs> quite a bit. And that, and that's what sets the RR apart from the Rosso, you know, quite handily in terms of, of uh, visual aesthetics. Um, now, does the, the aero package help? It's tough to say without a direct reference to a bike that doesn't have it, but it's quite stable at high speed. So there we go. Since we're talking about, uh, you know, some of the, the fit and finish items, there's the Alcantara or Alcantara or whatever that word is that's not English. <laughs> you know, basically it's just a textured seat. And it also comes with, uh, you know, very grippy foot pegs that are specific to the RR. And that does bring us to the comfortability. And in a lot of ways, this motorcycle is far more comfortable than most super sports are. You know, the riding position is aggressive. It is meant for hard riding. It does put your weight over the front end and that translates to good feel and, um, you know, road feedback and things like that. But it's not as risky as other super sport motorcycles might be with clip-on handlebars. Um, adding to the sort of niceties of it is a really tall, almost double bubble style um, windscreen, which interestingly enough, I, I feel like the F3RR offers more wind protection than some sport touring motorcycles I've ridden in, in the past. And that's a pretty bold statement if you really think about it. Um, you know, race replica motorcycles are not meant to be uh, extremely comfortable in any way, but there's a lot of leg room. I don't feel incredibly cramped, despite the fact that, you know, the bike does feel small and it is, it's a tight dimensions, you know, athletic motorcycle, but it works. And then you have this carbon fiber everywhere and <laughs> you look at the thing and you're like, oh man, I think it looks pretty awesome. You know, the only sort of, sort of downsides to it in terms of the fit and finish are just some of the, this, the carryover components, we'll say. So the generic switch gear, um, I've seen that particular unit on a handful of different motorcycles. So it's on an MV Agusta specific part. And then, you know, the lighting is still halogen lighting. It's like, okay, you know, I know that dates back to earlier generations of the MVs, but then you have all this carbon fiber and that Akrapovich exhaust and, you know, <laughs> the, the F3 look is just, ah, it's great. It is spectacular. Um, yeah. You know, like I said, in a lot of ways, they, they got it right the first time. Um, I guess that sort of, you know, leaves us with uh, the brakes as sort of being the last thing here. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, same Brembo, Brembo hard, hardware as, you know, as it ever was. Um, you know, interestingly, the brake feel is, and I shouldn't even really say feel actually, um, it just has a sort of an inconsistent sweep before biting. And it can also be a little bit spongy at times, which based on that description, you'd think that there isn't power and feel. There actually is quite a bit. However, that description of that, that, uh, that, that sweep before biting and then sometimes being spongy applies to both the front and rear. So by my estimation, I would say that it's the new Continental ABS pump doing some sort of meddling uh, in the works. You know, despite the fact that we get new cornering ABS features that I think are absolutely excellent, that aspect does need to get worked out a little bit. Um, so, 
although I would say that's a knock in the braking area, power-wise and feel-wise, it's still there. It's just uh, the braking bite isn't as sharp as MVF3s have been in the past. Okay. And that's, that's a little bit strange. Um, so definitely work that out. And, you know, that's, that's one of the few performance uh, knocks that I have for this motorcycle. But in terms of power, braking, safety, feel, more than adequate there. Um, you know, the power is quite good. Uh, and then, of course, we have the tires. You know, it's still running the Pirelli Diablo Rosso Corsa 2. We tested that tire a number of years ago. Great all-around tire. Has a harder center compound for riding on the street. And essentially a Super Corsa SP sidewall for grip when you're, you know, hustling around the canyons or racetrack. For the racetrack, we ended up using the Pirelli Diablo Super Corsa SC3, which is... Um, the Pirelli track day tire, and you don't have to use tire warmers or anything like that. But the important thing there is that they stick like glue and uh, got great wear throughout the day at the racetrack. So that's something that I really enjoyed. Um, but yeah, you know, getting that extra little bit of grip in your pocket for a track day is always nice. That tire is really cool because it features super fast warm up times. You know, you can use tire warmers if you want to. But realistically, if you wanted to go and just do one, you know, pretty, pretty kind of confident siding lap, we'll say, and they'll be more than up to snuff. And then you can just start hammering laps, you know, without using tire warmers. But it's an excellent track day tire for sure. Right. All right. So overall, it sounds like you really like the bike with a, a few a few small caveats, but nothing, no deal breakers there. No. And, and realistically... The 2022 MV Gusta F3R is $26,998. If you're buying this bike, you definitely want it. And whatever we say probably doesn't matter. But, you know, I guess the point of testing it is to find out, is there real substance to it? Is it a styling exercise? Is, is it just, you know, a rich guy or gal's living room accessory? Yes, but it also has substance. So it goes as good as it looks in many regards. Um, and for me, the takeaway here are the, the engine characteristics and the chassis characteristics. Those two things are just so good. It's why, it's why I feel like the MB F3 needs to exist. Uh -huh. It's just anyone that's in a super sports and understands what a good super sport is because it's not as aggressive as a, as a 1000, you can actually ride it and not be totally terrified the entire time. <laughs> to me, it just exemplifies the super sport experience. So yeah, it's in that sort of halo pricing category. There's no denying that, but it is also the last of its breed. And um, you have the Triumph uh, Daytona Moto2 765 limited edition and the Ducati Panigale V2, you know, that, that's, that's about it really. Yeah, And then you have the, the last holdouts in select markets of the 600 Supersport category. But if these bikes are going to stick around, then displacement sizes are going to have to bump up as these the aforementioned motorcycles did. And things are going to have to change. So we'll see. So yeah, it's in a rarefied price point and it is a rarefied motorcycle. And that's just the way it is. But it is beautiful. And let's be honest, we buy motorcycles with our heart, not our head. So I'm sure it'll have 
plenty of people lining up to buy it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. Yeah. No worries, man. The YZFR7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZFR3 and the prestigious YZFR1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZFR7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZFR7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZFR7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. This second part of this podcast is brought to you by editor-at-large Neil Bailey, who is currently reporting from the Ukraine war zone. In this segment, Neil introduces us to world motorcycle traveler Anna Greshishkina. Anna is herself Ukrainian and somewhat naturally felt the need to curtail her travels and head back to her homeland and into the war zone to help with the horrendous humanitarian crisis that is developing there. Please follow Anna on her social media, either Anna Greshishkina on Facebook or at Anna Greshishkina on Instagram. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode. I am sitting in Kyiv in Ukraine with Anna. Hi Neil, it's nice to meet you. Yesterday actually, and good to see <laughs> yeah. you again today. Um, Anna, just um, start back to when you started riding motorcycles in Ukraine, what year that was, and the small bike that you started on. Yeah, it was back in 2005, and um, I decided to, to try to learn <laughs> riding a motorcycle. Um, yeah, um, I didn't drive a car at the time and uh, obviously I didn't have anyone in my circle of friends who would be a motorcyclist, so I don't know where it came from. <laughs> Just one morning I woke up with that crazy idea that, oh, I'm curious about motorcycles. <laughs> so because I didn't have any friends who would teach me how to, how to ride, so I went to the motorcycle school and they taught me a little bit how to ride. And that's when I bought my first little motorcycle, which was Kawasaki Eliminator 125cc. It was a little chopper. And uh, well, that was really fun. And I just understood that, yeah, this is my thing. I, yeah, <laughs> that was a good decision. So I started to ride a little bit, first in Kiev, then um, just in Ukraine, then a little bit outside of Ukraine. Um, but then the next year, very sad thing happened. My little motorcycle was stolen. <laughs> I just left it outside of my house. I was too lazy to go to the garage. So after a couple of days of staying outside, so someone just decided that I don't need it anymore. <laughs> so yeah, they, they, they took it from me. Um, that was really hard and it was like losing a friend, you know. Um, but then I, I bought my second motorcycle, which was Again, Kawasaki, but a little bit bigger, Vulcan 900. And that was the motorcycle that I had for actually for seven years. 
and that's the motorcycle that I traveled a lot and that's actually where my passion for traveling started yeah so at the time you're working at the bank and you have a corporate job you're sort of yeah. every weekend and, and holiday that you can get yeah. you're taking yeah. off on the Vulcan yeah pretty much in all my vacations like one week or two weeks like uh, one month that's the longest vacation that you can have in Ukraine so I took this chance to, to travel. So I've been to some European countries, mostly Eastern European countries like Romania, Bulgaria, and I went to Turkey, then a little bit further to the Middle East countries in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon. Well, that was like 15 years ago. <laughs> and this was on, on the Vulcan? That was on the Vulcan. And traveling yeah. alone? Yeah. Well, sometimes actually um, I joined a group of friends, but um, soon I realized that actually the solo traveling is my thing. Yeah i'm an introvert i suppose <laughs> so <clears throat> yeah and i just enjoyed it like the only thing was coming back home you know like back to corporate world and uh i mean i liked my job i uh, i wasn't human resources manager but at some point i realized that it's a little bit boring like sitting in the office doing the paperwork <laughs> and then my motorcycle was just parked outside you know and uh <laughs> Yeah, and then at some point I started to dream about a big travel, a big journey around the world maybe. But that was so scary and I thought, that, oh my god, that's crazy thing, you cannot do that. <laughs> but it was coming back to me again and again and sometimes like, I, know, I had dreams at night that, and I thought, oh my goodness, maybe that's the sign that I have to try. Do you I think mean, you're, was this, were you meeting around the world travelers? When you go to Turkey, you go to Syria, you must have met other travelers who were making big journeys, right? Yes, I was meeting a few people, but I cannot say that actually they made an impact on me. No, but like the traveling itself, the world itself that uh, I started to see actually. So I was getting more and more hungry, you know, that I wanted to see more, not just to follow someone's example or to copy someone, imitate. No, I just, I just wanted to explore the world to myself, you know, so, yeah. But yes, fantastic. So obviously when you had the big dream um, to go around the world, um, you realized that the Vulcan was not the bike to do it on. Yes, yeah, and uh, especially by that time it, was, it wasn't it was a new bike anymore. It was, I think, seven, six or seven years old and also it's a cruiser, you know, <laughs> so you will not go much off-road. But actually, believe it or not, like when I traveled to those countries, I didn't just stay on the paved roads. I mean, it was like sometimes gravel and sometimes like big stones and sand. And I was not scared, you know, because again, because of the low center of gravity and I could balance with my feet, you know, so it was fine. Yeah, I fell once in a while, but nothing major, you know. <clears throat> so, but definitely I just had this idea in my mind that you have to travel on the big adventure bike, you know. So, um, I couldn't afford to buy a new bike. So I had this idea uh, that maybe someone could kind of sponsor me the bike, you know, some big company like, again, Kawasaki or Yamaha or whatever. <laughs> well, it didn't happen. So I was a little bit disappointed. And then at some point, um, I just realized that I will not give up. So even if no one kind of donates me the motorcycle or helps with the new motorcycle, I will just take my Vulcan and yeah, and just go for a trip <laughs> and then let's see what happens. But well, at some point I was contacted by Ukrainian office of KTM and they said that, look, we know about your project. That's cool. We cannot help you, unfortunately, but we can try to talk to Austrian guys and maybe they can contribute somehow. And that's how it happened. <laughs> so when you say that um, they contacted you to talk about your project, um, so you had been gaining 
local media attention for the upcoming ride, television, yes. newspaper, yeah. stuff yeah. like this? Yeah, pretty much. I made kind of a little bit of presentation of my trip because um, I was going to be the first Ukrainian lady traveling around the world on the motorcycle. So I assumed that it might be interesting, you know, for many potential sponsors. <laughs> But again, like we talked before, um, I'm not really good in, in marketing myself, you know, so maybe that was part of the reason <laughs> that um, by the time I started my journey, I had only 1,000 euro in my pocket and nobody knew about it because I was so ashamed that I failed actually in this big marketing campaign, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but there was some attention still. Yeah, and uh, on the day of my departure, it was 27th of July, 2013, there were a lot of journalists and you know mass media representatives so there were a lot of interviews and a lot of you know many talks with you know with media person people that's got to yeah. be pretty scary as you're sitting out right big expectation it was really scary because as i said um no one knew that i had just a little bit of money in my pocket so i thought okay maybe, maybe after a couple of months i have to go back <laughs> you know but and ktm had helped you somewhat with the well bike. they just gave me a 50% discount and that was the 1190 side. adventure yes yes which was still a lot for me you know to pay that 50% uh, yeah but believe it or not the bank that I used to work for quite a few years so they sponsored me a little bit so I could cover the 50% you know of the cost of the bike but okay I had the bike but I, I didn't have the cash <laughs> what about gear I mean you need uh, well, also, yeah, I got the, the gear from KTM as well. So Ukrainian dealership also, they contribute a little bit, you know, in terms of gear. So. so piece by piece. But you said that the actual planning from when you decided to go to the day you rode was what, 18 months of... It was one year and three months. One year and three months. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah. That's a long time to be set on a dream and planning and getting ready. Yes, you know, I was trying to, to meet some people, you know, who would maybe who would help me, you know, and making planning in terms of routes and, you know, contacts in the countries. And uh, yeah, and but first of all, trying to, to get some sponsorship, you know, and uh, I got some help actually, but not like cash help. Like yeah. sometimes, you know, some support of, of the gear of some products or, you know, like uh, SIM cards or you know international SIM card whatever which was all like Have all useful helpful. and helpful but you know when you travel you need to put gas into your, <laughs> into your bike you need to eat something you need to sleep somewhere and uh, yeah and that was really scary you know I'm, I was really I was really frustrated because I didn't want to fail you know and uh, I thought that that's what would happen you know, with so little money, I mean, that's, that's just it's really not possible even to travel to another country, not even, <laughs> not around the world. And my plan was to travel two years. And uh, in the time when I started. So you took off with your thousand euros. Where did you go? Well, my first, uh, first country on the route was Russia. Yeah, <laughs> ironically. That was 2013. Yeah, everything was still kind of okay-ish between our countries so um it took me three months actually to cross until Vladivostok well I wasn't in a hurry I was meeting people along the way so the main idea was my journey um of my journey was not just you know to rush through the world but uh to gain as many impressions experience as possible meeting people and uh, especially that I I named my journey I have a dream I don't have the tattoo there <laughs> 
so it's all about following your dream you know because it was my dream to see the world you know to to follow my heart and it happened and i just wanted to show people around me that it's possible and it doesn't matter what dream you have it can be about traveling it can be about having family or making business or whatever i mean it can happen as long as you make the first step and you just keep going keep pushing never giving up so i just try to to tell my story and you know the more i travel like taking photos and telling them stories especially to the kids you know to young people and that was so inspiring first of all to me you know <laughs> because when you share something that you believe in and when you see the light in the eyes of people that you li that that listen to you i think that's that's the best outcome you know so at some point i realized that it's not about traveling around the world anymore it's about actually sharing your your faith in the dreams you know it's about influencing other other people it's about inspiring them and being inspired by them by their examples too so <laughs> yeah that was fun <laughs> did the thousand years last across russia yeah yeah pretty much i tried to save a lot and also as i said i started to meet many people and they were inviting me to stay in their houses and i saved a lot well and then i also i made many friends you know and they helped me in many other ways so okay they offered me their houses they sometimes they offered me i mean not sometimes but many times they offered me food and then uh they they were helping in many other ways so even to ship my bike you know to thailand the, the local that's where you went from Russia. yes yes so the local bike club in Vladivostok, they helped me to finance this trip which was of course expensive <laughs> you know so yeah and i can tell like hundreds of stories like this when you are kind of desperate you don't have you know money for the next stretch and then somehow you just you just get what you need at the right time at the right place were you communicating your journey online at that point through social yes. media and yes. places yes. so people were able to yes. assist you or follow you or yeah. get involved yeah that's how i was meeting people of course on the road and also through social media yeah. i was really active on facebook like later on instagram and yeah and it kept going so from thailand where where did your journey take you over the next because you say you originally were going to go for two years yes so from thailand i went to malaysia and singapore so a little bit of asia then australia then from australia to us did you work in australia no i mean i don't work physically but yeah. i mean um i work online and sometimes i was given presentations for bike communities or somewhere else and uh, sometimes people were donating or again helping in any other way like hosting me you know inviting me to some places how, so. how long did you spend in australia <laughs> i think it was about four months mm. yeah four months yeah i had ridden um, an old yamaha v twin around australia in 1987 oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. back in the back in the stone ages <laughs> but it was great i had really, we went uh, learned to dive in the barrier reef and worked in sydney and spent a year in australia it was oh, a, australia is great I it's a beautiful it. country yeah. to travel isn't it and i met some really great people that i still keep in touch with now yeah after eight years yeah <laughs> and, uh, but um i made just the southern part of australia yeah. i didn't have more time you did know. you go across the Malabar and yes mm, yes yeah yes. i didn't do that piece that we went the weather was too cold we went yeah. north and so I didn't do the northern part, and that was the plan for the for the next round. For the next loop, yeah, yeah. yeah but um, and then obviously didn't happen yet. <laughs> so then to the states. Then to the states. Uh, one of my dreams in the states was to travel Route 66, 
I don't know why, but for our people in our countries, it's like, I don't know, it's a crazy thing, you know, if you go to US, you just have You've to travel to with right, 66, yeah. yeah. So um, I sent, I, I shipped the bike from, from Sydney to San Francisco, yeah, uh, and then Los Angeles, Chicago, Route 66, and New York, going down through Texas, and Mexico, Central America, South America, and Africa, and back to Europe. So you, and, that's pretty quick, but so <laughs> you, where did you end up at the bottom of South America? Uh, so that was the first circle. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, from Brazil, yeah, from Brazil. You shipped from I Brazil sh to Cape Town? Uh, I shipped the bike to Johannesburg. Oh, to Joburg, yeah, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I started from there. And then you just flew to meet the bike, or did you go with it on the ship? Or? Well, first I flew to Johannesburg and my bike was still in Brazil. So, and I, oh my goodness, that, that was the story. Whew, yeah, so they promised to, to send my bike like a few days after I left. Well, I got my bike mm, three months later <laughs> in Johannesburg. I already lost any hope that I would see it anytime soon, you know, or at all. So what happened, like, uh, there was a huge strike in Brazil, like a few days after I left. So no one worked. So, and the bike just, just sat there. Yeah, and the bike was just sitting in, uh, in the garage of my friends. And then, uh, uh, I mean, th this strike lasted a month or so. So slowly they started to work again, but it just it took forever, you know, to, to collect paperwork and, uh, you know, every stamp, you know, you just had to wait for one week or more, you know. And I tried to push it. I even wanted to, you know, to bribe, to, to do whatever. But it just it didn't help. But finally, finally, I got my bike, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time. That to was work. actually the gift for my birthday. So it was around October time and uh, my birthday is in October. So I was the happiest person on earth. So when I got my bike and yeah, and, um, and then I started traveling in Africa and that was that was really cool. So um, I decided to ride the East Coast. So from South Africa, but first through Namibia, so a little bit of the south, then through Zambia and Malawi and Uganda, Rwanda, up to Egypt. Yeah, so it took me around one year, well, a little bit more than one year. Again, I was stuck in South Africa. I mean, not stuck, but yeah, yeah stuck waiting for the bike three months, you know. Mm. So I had to reapply for, for the extension, you know, that, that was also kind of a challenge. And then I traveled three months. In, in South Africa. I mean, actual traveling, not just waiting for the bike. <laughs> so yeah, I spent six months only in South Africa. And then I spent another three months in Namibia because I just fell in love with Namibia. Oh mm. my goodness. I even wanted to extend my visa, you know, in Namibia. So three months was not enough. But Namibia is a really strict country. So you cannot extend tourist visa. So the only chance for you to stay longer is for medical reasons, which I didn't have, luckily. <laughs> So yeah, I had to, to cross from, from Namibia into, yeah, into Zambia and continue. Yeah, but it was okay. It was okay too. By the time you got to Egypt, how long had you been going at that point? Well, it was already like four and a half years or something like this. This is yeah. the two year journey now, yeah, it's turned into yeah. four and a half years. Yes, yeah. I know. So after two years, I realized, okay, I didn't make it around the world. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, so what? Okay, so I just can keep going. Okay, I'll extend my journey one more year. 
And okay, two more years, then three they more years. They just kept working out yeah, and working out. Yeah, and then out. I just realized, okay, why, why to, to make any schedules and timeframes? I just keep going. I, I live my life. At some point, I realize that it's not journey anymore. This is just life on the road. That's how I live. Mm. And that's it. <laughs> so, and, uh, so by the time I got back to Europe, actually, so the, the full circle was made. So the mission accomplished somehow. But did you come back to Ukraine? No, no. I came back to Europe. You came back to I Europe. I was not still in Ukraine and I thought, um, okay, so what, shall we just come back home to Ukraine and then the journey finished? Come Where back. were you in Europe when you made this decision? Poof. Honestly, I don't remember. But you know what, there was, one, there was one interesting episode because these thoughts were kind of in my mind. So what shall I do? Should I come back or should I continue? What shall I do? So I was still in Europe, but I wasn't in, in Ukraine yet. And you know what? Uh, I remember that I had a dream at night. So I had a dream and I saw me coming back to Ukraine. You know? So I came back to Ukraine and I just, it was so vivid, my feeling of being so disappointed, you know, that I felt that I made the wrong decision. I don't want to stop my journey, but I stopped my journey. I'm back in Ukraine and what shall I do? And then I woke up in the morning and I just felt so much relief. Oh my God, that was just the dream. You know, I didn't come back home. I'm still on the road. And for me, that was the sign. This is the right decision. You just keep going. You don't have to come back to anywhere. I mean, this is your life. And I decided, okay, I'm just making the second circle. Okay, anti-clockwise. <laughs> so, and um, after Europe, I shipped Dubai back to South America. And that's how my second circle started. Where did you start in South America? Back in Brazil? In, uh, in Argentina. Oh, we started in Argentina. So I flew my bike to Argentina and yeah. And I spent another, more than a year in my second circle. So the idea of second circle was to, to travel to to other countries or maybe the same countries but different roads, you know, so to explore more of the country. But again, to meet to meet some friends that I made last time. Mm. And uh, yeah, that, that was that was also fun. And that was a different story, you know. So when you travel the second time to some places and you're meeting people, I don't know, you feel like more mature, you already, you know what you want, what you expect from the journey. Because when I started, I had no idea, you know, <laughs> I just went, you know, mm. without any plan. But now I just, uh, uh, I think that I had in mind, like, clear picture what I wanted now, like, to concentrate more on just taking my time, you know, to stay longer in some places. But also I realized that uh, I can create the Guinness record <laughs> actually on the longest female journey around the world, like solo journey, not in a, not What is the longest journey? Well, at the moment it's Ben Kapulko, the lady from Slovenia. So she traveled five and a half years and she made 180,000 kilometers. So I'm more than that at the moment. Yeah, so I thought, why not? I mean, that, that was not my kind of initial goal, but I mean, if I can, why not to do that? So, yeah, that was a little bit of extra. <laughs> motivation. Extra motivation. Exactly. So you came up to South America, Central America, back into North America? That was my plan. Mm. Yeah, so I started from South America and then I was heading north to, because I didn't make it to Canada and Alaska in the first circle. Mm. So uh, in my second circle, that was my plan to go all the way to the north. But then the COVID happened. I was in Mexico and I was already on the way back to the border uh, with US 
and I was already somewhere in the center of Mexico when I realized that I have to stop and I will not be able to cross back into US. So the lockdown everywhere in the world. And I had many options for Mexican friends where I could stay, where I could get stuck, so to say. Because I'm a big lover of the ocean and just water. So I had one option of staying in the beach house in Yucatan, in the south of Mexico, and it was 2000, like, backwards. And I realized, yeah, yeah, I'll go for it. <laughs> so I rode back all the way to the south of Mexico, and that's why I spent six months of my lockdown. I cannot complain because uh, the beach was just 100 meters away from the house and uh, the house was just all for me and because my friends who owned the house they stayed in the city like 30 kilometers away in Merida and uh, th that was great I mean that was that was really great but definitely I missed the road and uh, every month I thought that I will be able to go back to US that the border will be open but by the date that the border was supposed to, to be open, I was receiving the news, you know, from internet. They extended one more month, then the next month they extended another month. And it just kept going and going and going. And yeah, that was kind of frustrating. But again, as I said, I could not complain. And now I remember this time with, you know, with a big smile. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't get back to the U.S. on this? No. no. So you shipped no. the bike back to Africa? I shipped the bike back to Europe because I got a chance actually to, um, to fly back to Europe, even in the COVID time. Yeah, and that's what I did. And um, I flew to Germany and I shipped the bike also to Germany. It took it like two months. So it, it wasn't the air freight, but sea freight. And uh, yeah, and then I was stuck in Europe for a few more months. <laughs> but then the border started opening up a little bit, just a little bit. So um, I got my bike by that time. And um, yeah, and then I continued like my European stretch of the journey of the second circle. And that was fun too. So that's, uh, yeah, so like the last year. I spent traveling in Europe and finally I made it to Scandinavia and to Norway to the North Cape. So that's what I haven't done in the first circle. Mm. So I accomplished that mission. Yeah, I rode to the North Cape and watched the sun. Yeah, no, th that was Not great. Set. Yeah. Now <laughs> Norway is one of my favorite countries. It's a beautiful country to ride. It's oh, incredible, yeah. my goodness. Mm. Now I have a dream to come back there and mm. to travel mm. for much longer. Yeah, um, anyway, after Europe, Africa was my next stretch. And um, I flew the bike again. Where did you from to from Frankfurt to to Namibia? Okay. Yeah. So the idea was to start from well, initial idea was to start from Morocco because Morocco is and so, go down, so close yeah. to uh, yeah to to Europe. But uh, with the COVID time, it it, it it would not it would not be possible for me to go there. To cross uh, all the borders and yeah mm. yeah because if I were a European citizen that would be easier because I wouldn't need visa but as a Ukrainian um, I needed visa and uh, I would not be granted any visa in the COVID times and Morocco was very very strict with COVID regulations I I think even it's still you know has some funny rules but anyway so I had to change the plan. So uh, instead of Morocco, I could go to Namibia, and this is one of the 
one of very few countries in Europe that I don't need visa as a Ukrainian. <laughs> so I could just fly there and get the visa at the airport. But I had to fly my bike. Uh, well, that's what I did. And my bike arrived. In Windhoek? Or? In, uh, in Windhoek, yeah. Mm. And uh, then I flew to Namibia on 23rd of February. <laughs> on 23rd of February and I was full of hopes and I was so looking forward to, to my next stretch of African journey. The idea was to travel the west coast this mm. time and then uh, I would have made the whole loop of Africa um, but it didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen Yeah. because the 24th of February came and it changed the life of many million people not just mine. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. So in, so in those early days um, after February 24th and you're in Namibia and what are you thinking at this point to do? I mean, did you immediately say I have to go home? I, I've got to go help? Did you Well, it was immediately in my mind, you know, but um, I mean, you have to understand that by that time I was on the road for more than eight years already. And uh, I didn't have any plans to go back to Ukraine anytime soon, you know. Mm. I mean, I wanted to finish the second circle and I still had like Africa and the northern part of Australia and Asia. I mean, I, I could have been on the road for a few years more. Yes, yeah. You know? And I really wanted to accomplish this huge project, you know, of, of two circles of nonstop continuous journey, you know. So for me, it was like a very big decision, you know, to stop the journey. But on the other hand, I realized that I cannot continue traveling any longer like, uh, like I used to because my, my country is the war zone, you know, and it's, uh, and it's crazy. Like people are dying, you know, people are killed. And I cannot just, you know, <laughs> just close my eyes and just enjoying my life in Africa and keep posting pictures in uh, my social media of, you know, of, of all the beauty and all the experiences, you know, I mean, it's just, that's not right. Uh, well, but still for a few weeks, um, I tried to participate in all the, you know, in all the events, you know, related to Ukraine, like raising awareness. And uh, we organized some events in Windhoek and in Svakopmund and giving interviews and, you know, like talking to local people, trying to, to get them support Ukraine because Africa is really difficult, like markets for, for Ukraine because they're more like Russian oriented, like, well, for historical reasons. <laughs> Yeah, um, but I mean, I've done what I could, you know, in that part of the mm. world. And uh, I came to the point when I had to decide either I just continue traveling and trying to do some, I don't know, maybe fundraising, raising awareness, blah, blah, blah. Or I have to come back and to be with my country and to be with my people. And um, I started to talk with my friend who at that point became the commander of the battalion, like military battalion here in Kiev. And um, so um, I talked to him almost every day asking his opinion. So what do you think I have to do? You know, I said, well, it's, it's your decision. I mean, it's not safe if you come. But if you want to come, I mean, you will have something to do here to help. So you can join our battalion. You can get some, you can get trained, you know. So, I mean, you can use your skills. And I just wanted to do like like anything. I could peel potatoes, you know, <laughs> or I can, I don't know, I could clean the floor, you know, or something like this. I just wanted to be useful, you know. And uh, so at some point I, I realized that, yes, I will go back. You know, I will fly back to, 
to Europe and then from there I will take the train because there were no flights anymore. So I left my bike in Windhoek and uh, in a friend's garage. So for a limited period of time, <laughs> but um, I was sure that it would be safe there. And yes, and I came back to Ukraine. And funny enough, I just, uh, I started to calculate. So how many years, months and days I was on the road, you know, like uh, until I came back to Ukraine. And suddenly I realized that uh, there were three eights. Eight years, eight months, eight days. I was like, wow, that, that must mean something. I still don't know what it, <laughs> what it means, but uh, that was a little bit strange. Yeah, so I took the train from Poland and I crossed into Ukraine. It was midnight, so I couldn't see anything, I, but I just knew that now I'm entering Ukraine. Yeah, the war zone. How did that feel when you crossed in? I don't know. I, I just, I felt like, I didn't feel anything. I, I felt like numb, you know, just like emptiness, you know. I, I was really curious what I feel. I don't know. It was, it was very strange. Uh, because at some point I just realized that, I mean, I don't know where is my home, you know. To say that Ukraine is my home, it would be a little bit unfair because I started to feel that the road is my home maybe mm. it sounds a little bit pathetic you know but th but that's how I felt you know mm. I don't belong to any place anymore you know I belong to yeah the to, world to the world yeah and coming back to Ukraine it didn't feel like I'm coming back home but it felt like uh, but th it felt like the place that I have to be at the moment there's always this kind of you know confidence in my heart that I'm I'm making the right decision I don't know what I will do there, but even like being present there and even to show to, even just to the motorcycle community, you know, that this is so important now, you know, it's not just another war in the world, but this is so important and it affects like the whole world. And now I stop my journey, which is like, which is a huge thing for me, but now there is something more important that what I want than, uh, than my journey, than my... I don't know, dream, then, then whatever. I mean, this is something that I have to, to contribute all my life to, you know. And uh, yeah, so that, that was the feeling and that was the conviction that I'm doing the right thing. And um, I just, I, I didn't know what to expect, you know. I, I realized that maybe, I, I mean, I can be killed anytime, you know, because I didn't have any idea what is happening in Kiev, in, in any other country of Ukraine, in a, any other part of Ukraine. Um, so definitely I, I saw that I might be, you know, I mean, it might be unsafe, yeah, but I think that I was ready for it. I think I came to that point when there was something more important than even your life. <laughs> yeah, because what's the point to, to live your life but to violate your values, if it makes sense, you know, there is something really more important than just, just keeping your life safe, mm. you know, so yeah. And um, and also, I was sure that whatever is meant to happen, it will happen. Mm -hmm. So if this is my time now, you know, well, then this is my time. <laughs> or if I still have to accomplish something, then I will see what it is. And the universe will, will show me. Well, I'm still waiting for it <laughs> to show me. But you, but you, you did come back to, to Kiev and yes. um, you joined your battalion. Yes. So firstly, you had to go through some training. And yes. Yeah. I immediately went to that training of 
kind of initial training so uh, it was really interesting because I had no clue about any military stuff you know I never held any weapon in my arms <laughs> so that was very useful and very interesting because um, we had like uh, sessions uh, definitely shooting you know and combat tactics and medicine uh, like tactical medicine and some psychology you know and a lot of like philosophical things when you, you say know. psychology what would they uh it's like how to deal with uh you know with psychological wounds you know like oh, people uh, with the people yes. you meet or for yourself more for the uh with the people you meet and you know and how to help to i mean to your comrades you know who lost the the arm you know or or the, the or, or who saw that his you know his fellow comrade is dead you know so, so you have to be able to help them. yes yeah. yes yeah. you have to help you have to be able to help to to the others and yeah. to yourself as well you know and uh you have to know how how to deal how to behave what to say what not to say you know interesting that, that, yeah. that's a very important thing and um the, the lady who was giving us lectures like the training uh she's a professional military psychologist and mm. she has a lot of experience since 2014 because this is not the new war no. you know the, the, the war started in 2014 <laughs> yeah. it, it just it was not on the news well it was like in the news for the first weeks but then the rest of eight years, it was just silent as if nothing was happening, you know. But there were people who were dying yeah, in Ukraine on the daily basis, you know. Yeah, go to the, go to the Sofia and see the wall. Yeah, yeah. All and the pictures of the people, you know. Yeah, so this lady, she was a military psychologist mm. for all this time. And she was telling us like really interesting stories and uh, like definitely like how to behave how to deal with it with your emotions yeah yeah and uh, and what was interesting like what I, uh, what really just was ingrained in my mind that uh, something about hatred you know she said that when you hate you already lost <laughs> you know so there should not be a hatred in your you know in your mind because hatred will defeat you yeah you have to fight the enemy that there can be anger inside of you but hatred, it helps them, not us, wow. you know. So, I mean, there is the war around us and it's like, like the trash, you know, like the dust that we have to sweep from our house, you know, but we should not let this trash come into our mind, you know, because it will get our mind dirty and unfunctional, you know. And I just loved it so much. It's just, it's not really a popular idea, you know, <laughs> because there's so much hatred and I understand it. And sometimes, I mean, for me, it's really difficult to deal with it, you know, like myself. But I understand that that makes sense, you know, like um, we really have to, to have like clear mind, like cold mind in order to, you know, to win, <laughs> to win this war. Who is going through that process with you? Other volunteers? Yes. Yeah. yeah men, women and... Uh, mostly... Uh, mostly men of course but there were some women too mm. and uh, yeah so these are the people uh, who came just to just vote. to help mm. just to contribute they didn't get any money I mean in those volunteering uh, formations mm. and okay they, they were receiving some food and some ammunition you know but but still I mean basically they uh, they didn't have any income you know it's such a unique experience yes right? yes exactly and some people they were just pushing to get you know to those formations those territorial defenses well I'm sure that that you heard those stories that people even tried to bribe you know just to get into it, it was just incredible I was I was so proud of my people you know at some point I was just ready to cry of 
and those were the tears of of pride mm. that I belong to this nation, you know. Even now I am talking, it's just, you know, I, I feel like goosebumps, you know. Mm. Because now finally we just show to the world who we are, you mm. know, that this is the nation that is ready to, to fight to death, you know. And that's how I saw that it's not life who is the ultimate like value, you know. I mean, because you can live your life as a as a traitor. And what is, what is the meaning of your life? Your life just means nothing, you know, to the universe, you know, <laughs> to the world. But if you die, you know, with the values, I mean, that, then it goes beyond your life, you know, it still influences, it still kind of pushes the energy into, you know, into this world, into the cosmos, into the universe. This is the main thing. And I just saw that many of these people, of my people, they are ready to die. And they don't think twice <laughs> at all. They don't know what will happen tomorrow, but they are going, you know. Mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's incredible. This is a really unique experience, and uh, right. I, I mean, didn't regret at all. No, what a I transition regret. from riding a bike. I didn't I have quite such an, an intense experience, but before I came, um, a friend of mine, medical doctor, sent me to a combat lifesaver training program with mm -hmm. the military, and you know, for five days, being immersed in yeah. what you need to do purely to save somebody's life. Yeah. Not medicine, it's tourniquet, it's packing bullet wounds. Mm -hmm. it's, it, and then in the end of the experience, they created a, an environment for us of high stress, loud noise, screaming yes. and shouting. And we would come across, well, mannequins, but yes. what you would do and to make you understand that at certain times you would have to operate under this, it was just really, really intense experience. Yeah. I'm very glad I went through it, and really hope I, <laughs> while I'm here I don't don't have to use it. But so a little Hopefully bit I can not. relate to yeah. the two weeks that you had. You know, like just remember when it was over. It's like wow, that's just it's amazing that they would create that environment. Yeah. There was nothing about psychologically for mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. all about in a combat environment how you would keep people alive and keep yourself alive. Yeah. And what you could do is yeah, very amazing. Yeah, exactly. And just this situation, it just it changes your priorities. It changes your mindset. It just it changes you. And, uh, mm. But what you you know what you're saying about you know everybody that was with you and wanting to go. I mean, this is like you know so much of what we found since we've been traveling here. Just this spirit, you know. Like last night, there was a big dude outside this chicken shop. I mean, he had chicken, and half the shit's blowing up and half it's put back together we were in a pin I think <laughs> this guy's you know, he's shaking a hand and he's hugging us and he's outside his chicken shop and and then he just turns around and starts talking to Andre about how the Russians were going to try to shoot him twice you know just yeah. you know just amazing people and then the spirit you know just to keep go you know and we've seen this everywhere we've gone yeah it's been really really amazing so when you finished with your training, you went back to the battalion? Yes, yes, and I started to work. Um, well, my official position was press officer, so I had to deal with some promotion of the battalion and some social media pages. Which was all part of what you've been doing yes, for the last year. Yes, but at some point I realized, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a traveler in, you know, <laughs> in my heart, so uh, I just realized that for me it's, it's getting more and more difficult to stay at one place and without kind of doing much of 
action, you know, so I didn't feel that I'm so efficient. Sat behind a desk. Yeah. You need to move, you know? Yeah, yeah. And because like the, the commander of the battalion is, is my friend and also a motorcyclist. So we, we talked very openly and um, he said that, you know, I understand you and, and I can see it, you know, <laughs> in you that, that maybe it's not your thing. And especially that Kiev was getting more and more quiet. I mean, still there were some, you know, like uh, missile hits and explosions. But um, I mean, like the, the, the more active kind of war zone, it moved a little bit outside. Um, yeah, so um, I was offered to join one um, American volunteer uh, group uh, just to deliver some humanitarian aid to, you know, all around Ukraine. And um, so I was offered to be their translator and just to, to assist them. And for me, that sounded really interesting because, uh, yeah, I had to travel, you know, and that's what I wanted. So it was really great thing. So we went to the east, you know, basically very close to the front line, and that was totally different, you know, situation. But you said just the sound of the shelling and the bombs exploding. Yeah, 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 and um, and also I saw like the real maybe uh, the real imp impact of what I could do, you know, like delivering the stuff and talking to people and evacuating people, you know, to, to more safer places, mm. you know, um, like. Uh, also moving them to the hospitals when they needed it so that was really interesting and uh, yeah well at the moment also I realized that I wanted to you know um, to show to to my foreign friends to my audience so w what is happening you know to to show them the stories you know to tell them the stories of people that I'm meeting along the way how do you feel people are reacting to your stories and your experiences through social media do you feel you, you know like I, I receive many comments from my friends and they say you know we don't know uh, whom to believe you know and the news i mean it, it, it's maybe full of propaganda on the other side on the on the other side it's so much confusing so we get actually the real news of the war from your pages so mm -hmm. we just we trust you and we just want to see the war through your eyes. I like what you said and yesterday when we were um, at the bagel shop and you said, you know, when people are commenting or, or sending encouragement or donating or doing something, that it's building an energy. Yes. And the energy is what makes everything yeah. get yeah. better. Yeah, it just up to several months of the war, like uh, people, especially from other countries, they get back to their normal life. So, uh, I mean, this uh, this atrocities of the war, they don't impress them that much anymore, like at the beginning. So my idea is just to keep their focus on the war and on Ukraine, that it's still happening. You know, it's not somewhere, you know, far away. And so that they don't forget, mm. you know, and uh, I think that my main mission maybe is raising awareness and keeping this awareness. Because you, you said know? that awareness is what creates the energy. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. So sometimes, okay, if, I mean, you cannot donate or you cannot fundraise because maybe you don't have enough skills, but even like keeping this energy, keeping this momentum, you know, and, uh, and that, that also helps, you know, it's, it's given that energy of awareness, of consciousness. Mm. And in this, we, we can just switch, we can get united, you know, the whole world. And, and that's the only way that we can win, you know, mm. this evil. So, 
it's uh, it's not just uh, it's not just us as Ukrainians, but we need support of the whole world. Yeah, we are a brave nation. We are strong people. We are crazy people in some way, <laughs> you know. But I mean, uh, we have a lot of support at the moment, you know. And without it, maybe it would not be so. I mean, it's not easy, yeah. <laughs> but mm. we are still uh, we are still winning, and we will win, you know. Like mm. we, we will have this final victory. But we really need help of the world. It's not just us, and um, yeah, and again, it's not just the matter of conflict between two countries, you know, two nations, you know, it's, uh, it's the worldwide thing, and it affects the whole world, and all the continents, even in Africa, I, I mean, everywhere. Mm. <laughs> so I just want people to, uh, to understand this, to realize this, and to do what they can, you know, to, to fight against it. I think, and yeah, I mean, we can, we can do so much to help. Yeah. We just yeah. have to have a small shift in our thinking and our efforts. And, yeah. You know, and like you said, the, with propaganda and media and, and, and stuff, like it, it's, it's really, really, really simple. Women and children are being blown to fucking bits by Russian bombs. Like, what is, what propaganda? It's, how difficult is it to understand what's going on? I mean, yeah, and exactly. And when some people try to convince me, oh, but the reason maybe that Biden or whoever influenced and Putin had to, so I, I, I mean, <laughs> can you hear yourself? What kind of bullshit are you talking? It's not Biden who is bombing us. It, it, it's Putin, you know. So, so there's no reason, you know, to someone, justify someone his said actions. To, someone said to me before I left, they said, oh, if Trump was in power, this wouldn't be happening. I said, if my, uh, if my yeah. uncle had tits, it'd be my aunt. Yes, like, exactly. <laughs> Like, oh, that, that, that's, uh, that's a good expression. <laughs> I mean, how do you make this equivalence from yeah. innocent men, women, and children being killed? Yeah. I mean, And how would you know? I mean, how can you prove that that would be the case? I mean, but right. even if it would, so... So what? So what? It, this is what's happening today. Yes. That's all you need to know. Yeah. yeah, someone wrote to me the other day and they said, like, something about, well, I expected your posts to be different and... You know, people need to know what's going on. I said, if they fucking don't know what's going on after f four months of news, like, what am I going to say to somebody to try and educate them to what's going on if they if you don't know what's going on by mm -hmm. now? Yeah, and you know, okay. you go to the monument today where the, all the Russian tanks, Sofia, the cathedral, mm -hmm, and the square, mm -hmm, and yes. you know, as with Andre, and there was a there's a little car there. It's all shot to bits and blown up, and somebody's handwritten in Ukrainian children. Like, how can you look at that? Someone's driving down the road with a car that says children with the white flag on the mirror and it's getting shot to bits and everybody yes. killed. And yeah. you, you want to know something? What do you want to know? <laughs> Isn't it enough? Yeah. So like you said, yeah. like if this was in power or that one was in power and he didn't do this and it's just so crazy, yeah. So now for you going forward, what is, stay working with the volunteers? I don't know, I'm opening for any opportunity, you know, I just mm. want to be helpful and I want to do more and more, you know, I just want to feel that I am useful mm. and uh, I don't know at, at what point it will be enough, you know, for me to feel this way. But I, I'm just talking to many people, both Ukrainians and foreigners, and I just realized that uh, it's everywhere, like people are not satisfied with how much they are doing. You but know, you so even said you know that you find yourself depressed. You're not doing enough. You're not. You need to do more. I think all of us we want to do more. 
you know, like, again, both Ukrainians and Americans and British, everyone who really care, you know, and um, yeah, so I don't know, I'm opening, uh, I'm open for any opportunities, you know, anywhere that I can be helpful, I mean, I don't have many skills that are useful, you know, in the, in the combat or in the military, you know, circumstances, but I mean, I'm here, mm. you know, and as long as I'm here, I want to, to do something, maybe it's, it, it's something little, something small, but... But if, um, so, and if somebody wants to help, what can they do? How can they help you? What can, if you were telling uh, them what to do? Yeah, well, as I said, I'm not really good in fundraising, but I want to actually to keep doing this. So I will, I mean, I have my pages, like PayPal accounts. So they can I donate through your pages? Yes. Because I know you have a lot of projects and yeah. we're going to wrap up here in a minute because unfortunately uh, curfew will be upon yes. us and we have to yes, yes, be yes. off the streets here. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, Andre, our amazing fixer, is jumping up and down and waving at me. And cl <laughs> what does this mean when you're tapping your watch? <laughs> it's curfew. Yeah. So yeah. So if someone wants to help Anna, they can find your pages. They can just keep following me on my Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. So these are my main uh, social media pages, and I keep posting everything that is happening. So um, so I post the stories and some pictures. And definitely the ways to contribute to the cause and uh, as i said i'll try to be more active and actually to raise the money and to direct them to the to the right channels because yes now i'm meeting more and more people like uh people who have been affected you know by, yeah. by the war and uh definitely there's a lot of needs you know and uh, i wish i could help everyone you know <laughs> but uh at least if i could help one or two people you know, to make their life a little bit easier. That's well. Thankfully, yeah. we have a great motorcycle community, but a lot of people that can help us. So yes. we will continue to do what we can. Anna, thank you so much. Thank you and, for listening, um, and I oh. really appreciate that. <laughs> thank you for coming to Ukraine and for doing what you are doing. Yeah, nothing. You guys are the ones that are doing it. So thank you. Thank you so much.